I think one of the most shocking experiences of my time in that moment was when an investor looked me in the eye and said, I love you guys. You strike me as a company that's going to sell to Twitch for $50 million. And frankly, I'm not interested in that outcome. And (laughs) my jaw dropped to the floor. (laughs) Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guests today, Eli Stoneberg and Jeff Greco, are the co-founders and the CEO and CTO, respectively, of Hovercast, a company that provides streaming tools that bring the viewers of live events into the broadcast. In the 2020 primaries, they had clients like Bernie, Steyer, and Yang for president. They've had interesting careers. They started collaborating with each other in college at Boston University and created music videos for notable bands and other innovative online experiences for a variety of companies over time. Jeff is not new to tech and progressive politics, having worked for Blue State Digital and for the Obama Foundation. Hovercast is a good example of political tech entrepreneurship. You'll want to listen. So first my sponsor, then my interview with Eli and Jeff of Hovercast. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Jeff and Eli... Would you each mind introducing yourselves and giving me a quick biographies? Hey, I'm Eli Stoneberg. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Hovercast. Jeff and I met in college and we started making interactive music videos together. Spent about 10 years really focused on directing videos for pretty big bands like uh, Avicii, Foster the People. Our biggest video is Portugal, The Man Feel It Still which has over a quarter of a billion views on YouTube. We were always trying weird experimental things together and stumbled onto the world of interactive live streaming in 2015 and got really jazzed about the concept of streams that the audience can manipulate and co-create with the broadcaster. In early 2019, we created Hovercast and have been helping brands and politicians make really fun, interactive videos, live videos ever since. That sounds like a pretty cool backstory. Uh, Jeff? Yeah, I'm Jeff Greco. I'm originally out of California, currently living in Chicago with my family. I've got a a three-year-old and another one on the way next month, which is exciting. So it'll be my, my third baby after the first one in Hovercast. Eli and I have been collaborating forever. We're both sort of digital makers, um, really interested in applying creativity and technology together. Um, I've also got a a bit of a background in political tech after sort of 
helping out with some campaigns in the aughts, went on to work with Blue State Digital for a few years around the 2012 election. Since then, collaborated with some more sort of campaigns and also worked as uh, the first engineering manager at the Obama Foundation for a few years um, before leaving there in 2018 to really make a go of Hovercast. That's pretty cool. And I think how rare is it that you can form a company with someone who you have such a long history with and I assume so much trust. I mean, that's, uh, you know, everyone, there's a lot of people who are like looking for co-founders and meet someone and then you have so many partnership issues typically that can get in the way. So I envy you guys that. That's that's really cool. We're very lucky for sure. We have a lot of similarities, but we've also got a lot of complementary skills. I'm the more technical side of the partnership, uh, so I get to bring that to the table and, and have fun doing that. Eli's definitely the more uh, big thinker, outgoing, taking on the world side too. So um, yeah, it's been really amazing thinking about how long this has gone. We've gone through phases where we've, you know, us working together has been the primary thing we've been doing. We've gone through phases where it's been a backseat to something else, but it's been a very consistent through line of always collaborating on something now for yeah, gosh, uh, <laughs> a really long time. What was the college where you guys met? We went to Boston University. At Boston, what did you each major in? I was a film major. Um, yeah, and I, I was also in the communication school. I started in journalism and then bounced over to uh, TV and film. I'm curious about that collaboration around music video. Uh, not a space I know anything about. And it's kind of intriguing to hear a little bit about it, especially when you manage to find a way to work with major bands. That sounds like a lot of fun. Just can you talk a little bit about the course of that collaboration and how did you find customers like that and what did you learn from doing it? Yeah, so uh, I was very interested in music videos in college and in in my first film production class decided to make a music video, like an unofficial music video for a band. And um, that found some success online in the very early days of YouTube and really kind of inspired me to keep going with that. And got, I think, quite lucky was in the right place at the right time when my downstairs neighbor in Boston came home one day and said, hey, I'm in a new band. We're called Passion Pit. And he played me the song Sleepyhead. Um, which has gone on to be a huge indie rock hit back then. Uh, and instantly I said, I'm making you guys a music video for this song. And so I made them the first music video, um, not with Jeff, but uh, we were working together still at that time. And the video ended up being rejected by the band because they got signed to Columbia Records and they wanted to do this huge budget video. And um, ours was made for 250 bucks. Uh, but very proud of it. It turned out actually great. And I, I think it's still better than the one that they put out. Uh, I stand by that. What that did for, for me was it had the band in it, whether they rejected it or not, it was clear that it was officially their video and it was good. And I was able to use that to uh, move to Los Angeles and get signed by a small production company that makes music videos out in LA right out out of college and started making music videos. And um, 
I think, you know, at that time, budgets were really disappearing. I use this line, like everything had been done before by Spike Jones or Michel Gondry. So like it was, I was searching for ways to make more novel music videos. And at this time, the web, you know, Jeff was this internet wizard who could code really whatever I dreamed up. And so we started experimenting with combining music videos with the internet. And so we made an interactive coloring book music video where you could drag stickers onto the video and kind of like they danced and played instruments. And then we made a Facebook connect music video where um, you were sort of personified in the video. It was back before they shut down the Facebook connect And so we were able to have really fun things like you'd get a text from your partner, your relationship on Facebook being like, Eli, you're in New York. I thought we had plans tonight. And this is like, wow, the video's going on. It was sort of a first person POV video. Um, That one was pretty funny because, yeah, we it was really everything that years later Cambridge Analytica would go on and leverage for evil, nefarious purposes. We were using all those same incredibly open data points that Facebook would give you for really fun, goofy reasons. And, you know, that was back in sort of the purer days of social media. I'm still sad that we, we can't do things like that. I mean, for very good reason, again, seeing what you can do when you've got this sort of unfettered access to people's information. But we were able to do it in a real sort of surprise and delight way when we pull out, hey, we happen to know who your friends in this city are and who your significant other is. And we're blending it into this, this really robust, uh, rich experience. So how did it proceed from there to, to doing lots of these? Yeah. So we then switched production companies to something called pretty bird, which is a really, um, great music video commercial production company. They do a bunch of Super Bowl ads that you see every year and, um, Started making bigger videos for folks like Dave Gahan of Depeche Mode and uh, Foster the People. And uh, we were also taking kind of branded opportunities at that time, interactive branded stuff. And, and really where this transitions is one day, Wyden and Kennedy, the agency for Old Spice, came to us and said, hey, we saw this thing called Twitch Plays Pokemon where the internet controlled a video game all together on Twitch. We want to make a live action version of it. Can you help us? And we said, that sounds cool. Let's do it. And that became the Old Spice Nature Adventure, which was actually the first kind of large scale brand execution on Twitch in 2015. And the idea was there's a man in the woods. He has no free will. He's controlled entirely by the Twitch chat what's going to happen. And the woods are propped out with all this cool stuff and characters. And and so we built the technology behind that, which was like a very early version of Hovercast. And I think, you know, bringing us to today, our past motto when we were directors was kind of, we never want to do the same thing twice. We always were searching for kind of novel experiments. But then when we saw the power of audience participation in a live stream, it was like this massive light bulb. Like, wow, a choose your own adventure story can be something different than like a predetermined path that the creators make. It can be this path that is openly infinite that the audience chooses. We started making more of these interactive streams and uh, 
And yeah, we were just like, after building the thing three times over, we're just like, this is a thing. This is going to happen. Let's make a software solution for other people to use. That's cool. Jeff, I want to hear a little bit about your political work, because I think that ties into what you will go on to do with Hovercast. And so you were at BSD and at the Obama Foundation. Can you talk about those experiences? What was it like to work at BSD? What'd you learn there? And the same for the foundation. Yeah, absolutely. Both really rewarding experiences. I was uh, working in engineering and software development at both places, building out websites. BSD was a really cool fusion of agency and technology, you know, sort of a, a good bedrock organizing technology for, you know, email signups and CRM and donations and all that good stuff. But then on top of that, the agency side was doing really fun, cool, innovative executions for a really neat swath of clients across both uh, political, nonprofit, some corporate, and then some cultural clients as well. So, you know, I um, work for any number of uh, smaller campaigns like ballot referendums and things like that, like Mainers United comes to mind, you know, pushing for gay marriage and equality in Maine. Um, but then stuff all the way to, uh, you know, we worked with uh, Lady Gaga on her Born This Way Foundation, um, which was super fun. All the way to, you know, when the the Boston Marathon uh, bombings happened, we were able to rapidly create a one fund um, digital presence, which went on to be the largest private relief fund in history. And, and all of that was due to that sort of combination of technology and creativity. And it gave me uh, a really good understanding of what was important for these organizations. I mean, at the root of it, it really is all about capturing that email address and then converting that to dollars, hopefully recurring dollars. And then so if that's sort of our square one, what can we build around that to make that more interesting, more innovative, more rewarding for constituents and followers? And so that's definitely something that's sort of translated into what we're doing today is how can we make this a more interesting participatory experience for those engaging with our clients, you know, and, and our campaigns, you know, what can we do to really um, make it make it more collaborative? I mean, give give more of a voice to the audience um, when they're interacting with uh, a campaign or a candidate. How can we elevate them and what can we give them in exchange uh, for their their hard-earned donation um, to make it a little bit more worth their while and a little bit more exciting? So you got some angle on what the political technology world was like there. Were you pretty much just head down engineering or did you get a sense of the market or anything like that from that job? Um, a bit. I mean, certainly aware of the landscape. I mean, it was more fragmented then. I mean, and, and on the agency side, we didn't work exclusively with the BSD tools. So I, I got to integrate with any number of with with NGP or with Salsa or or with Nation Builder, uh, and obviously had all of our uh, own sort of uh, engineering opinions about all of those, and uh, got to see some of the interesting philosophical battles over, you know, are we going to be a, a, a you know, BSD was a, a, a fiercely progressive firm, whereas Nation Builder was a fiercely independent firm. And that definitely has informed some of the, the discussions and decisions we've had to make with Hovercast when, when taking on clients. Now that I've been a little more removed uh, 
from that specific CRM aspect, it's been pretty wild seeing the consolidation in the past few years. And from an engineering standpoint, it feels like we're still several years away from that being beneficial in terms of, you know, if, if all of these different services are under one roof, maybe someday we'll get a unified API that I can use to get this data. But also, I'm not holding my breath on that front. But that's a big aspect of it, too, is, you know, with Hovercast in general, with our approach to both the fundraising pieces and to uh, where we're pulling in interactivity from, what video networks we're on, we've tried to be a really sort of flexible intermediary um, between all of them. You know, we're we're not trying to completely own uh, every piece of it ourselves. We're trying to be sort of more of a plug and play solution. So if you have an audience that's on Facebook or on YouTube or on Twitch or on Twitter or all of the above, we want to be a good solution to reach all of those people on each of those and get comments and, and feedback from each of them. Similarly, from a donation standpoint, right now, ActBlue and Stripe are our primary donation integrations, but you know we're, we're aiming to keep expanding that. Was the Obama Foundation time of any value in what you're doing with Hovercast? What did you learn there? That was re- uh, really interesting because that was an organization that was really ambitious, is still really ambitious. One big exciting piece for me was having been at BSD, during some of those Obama years, I was one of the ones who sort of stayed at BSD and helped hold down the fort while half the company went to go work on the campaign in 2012. So it was personally rewarding to get to actually, you know, be closer to the Obama story. Um, and then as somebody who had uh, relatively recently moved to Chicago, um, it was really cool for me to get to work on something that is going to be such a cornerstone of Chicago life moving forward. It's just a really exciting thing for the city. And to get to be there, you know, pretty early in in the organization, I was there just sort of a few months after he left office um, and getting to see what the organizations try to figure, you know, out of all of the goals that it had, which were so many in terms of what they wanted to do for Chicago, what they wanted to do for the country, what they wanted to do worldwide, for civics, for helping uh, lift people into, uh, yeah, you know, better better citizenship roles, to really try to push democracy and participation for youth. It was illuminating to seize the challenges that come from that. You know, that's that's a lot. That's boiling the ocean, and to then see it sort of get applied in, in really interesting ways uh, was cool. So just from an organizational standpoint, seeing how you had to pick your battles was useful. Um, it was also really cool then from an executional standpoint to get to play in that uh, branding area. I do a lot of design work along with my, my engineering work. So um, having a lot to do with defining the the look and the brand and, and getting to work with you know some really, really talented folks who are working on that. Was really exciting getting to you know work on Obama.org and the content and presenting that content there. Getting to start thinking about uh, what a membership program would look like there and how to you know had to be really strategic there about you know the past several years. Of course, have been such fraught political times. How does the non political foundation really slot in with that? Um, especially when you would think our audience is likely pretty motivated to be giving money directly to a campaign or to something that's more aggressively taking on a a Trump administration. How do we carve out our space for that? The final thing from a sort of technology standpoint that was really interesting was 
we did a decent amount of international work as well. So I got to just from a very technical standpoint, I did a lot of my first React work there. And now we build a lot of stuff in React. Um, we leveraged a good amount of Firebase, which is still a thing that we do to do a lot of real-time interaction. And so some things that were actually really directly applicable were uh, every year the Obama Foundation would put on a, a summit for the first few years that happened in the fall. And part of that is putting a live stream on the Obama.org homepage and wanting to sort of have control over that homepage. I was able to take some of the lessons in how do we make that reactive and interesting in real time and things changing directly in response to what was happening in the video and translate that uh, to, to Hovercast. Because a big part of Hovercast is being super real-time, super responsive, a web page jumping all around, things appearing, things disappearing in concert with what's happening on the video. Eli, what was the sort of founding story for Hovercast? What was the idea and how did you go about building a team and building the tech? Sure. So yeah, after that Old Spice job, um, we got hired to do another project, a series called Audi Think Faster. The idea was a Reddit AMA from the passenger seat of a race car. So you had all these celebrities going around a racetrack being asked questions on Reddit in real time. And so we built similar technology. This, this concept of moderating chat and displaying it on screen as kind of TV quality graphics was our, our sort of our initial prototype. And after that show, uh, which was successful, we were really, you know, we hadn't productized, but we were like, this is a thing, you know, and it's going to be a thing later. And so Old Spice came back to us and with a, a pretty large budget. And they wanted to do more of these types of shows. They had this idea of an obstacle course game show controlled by the internet. So think like Legends of the Hidden Temple, where the audience can control the obstacles and drop people into a foam pit if they wanted to, based on a poll. Because this was our third time around, we said, all right, let's build this thing with future use in mind. And so we made sure we had the rights to the code that we were building. And we sort of used that client contract to bootstrap the startup. Jeff was still working at Obama Foundation, and I applied to a bunch of startup accelerators, got into one called Accelerprise in New York, which has um, rebranded. It's now called Forum Ventures. But I went to that accelerator in a moment's notice. I had to kind of leave my whole life. I was at a wedding in Maine and just like got the news, like, can you be here next week? And I literally didn't fly back to LA and just went to New York with no clothes and <laughs> joined this accelerator and went through the accelerator and coming out of the accelerator was able to convince Jeff to leave his job at his cushy job at Obama and join me at this startup journey. Tell me about that conversation because, well, if, if the accelerator wasn't, then that was probably your most important move that you made as CEO, right? I think so. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there was two conversations. One was, should I do this accelerator and are you going to join me there? And the answer was yes and no. So Jeff wasn't going to join me in New York to do it, but he he encouraged me to do it at least, or it was open-minded enough for me to do it. And then, yeah, I think we got a little bit of traction and like minor investor interest. 
I mean, Jeff, you could speak to it more than me, but I definitely credit the accelerator. You know, if it did nothing else, I think it helped legitimize our business to you, Jeff, enough to quit your job. I've talked to a bunch of people who've been through accelerators and I'm pretty aware of them, but I didn't go through one myself. Was it valuable? Yeah, it was. So it, it's it's mainly targeted to, for uh, B2B SaaS founders. And for me, it was particularly helpful because I didn't go to business school. You know, I was just a creative in LA doing, you know, wacky, wacky music videos. So it definitely was kind of a crash course, how to do business thing <laughs> for me. And uh, that was helpful. And just learning about things like, oh, this is what, you know, outbound sales is. And we had all these different guests who would come in and talk to us about, here's what a KPI is. And we've been putting all of those learnings into place over the last two years. Uh, Definitely didn't happen overnight. It was helpful in that way. We ended up, you know, the whole idea behind an accelerator program is to funnel you into raising a seed round. And we tried to. We were hoping to raise $1.5 million back then. And we took 40 investor meetings. And and all of the investors pretty much said, okay, so you're trying to be a SaaS company. Where's your SaaS? And because we had worked with these amazing brands like Audi and Old Spice on these big contracts, but they were essentially consulting contracts with a side of software sales. And so we didn't get any investment back then, uh, or we got a small amount of angel investment and, and obviously a little bit of money from the accelerator. But it, it kind of forced us to bootstrap. And one of the things a lot of the investors were saying was like, hey, you guys are like profitable already. We usually don't talk to companies that make money. So like maybe you should just like go make some money. And then when you get traction, you can raise later, which ended up happening. So yeah, it was a good experience. I, I really like those folks at Forum Ventures. I recommend it to anyone who's interested in B2B SaaS. I mean, 40 investor meetings is a hell of a lot of them. I know people will sometimes do more. I've been on the other side of those meetings sometimes. You're looking for a certain sort of template. You're looking for, yeah, here is the stage of a piece of software. We have a little bit of traction. When you don't fit that, sometimes it eludes the limited creativity of the donor or the investor, right? Yeah. But maybe sometimes they're right that you're not ready. I mean, at that time, uh, we hadn't shifted into politics yet and we didn't have product market fit. At that time, we were thinking brands would be our solution uh, and our main customers. And we still love working with brands. We do it all the time. And we have this great partner of Tool of North America that kind of help us with brands. But what we've learned from brands is they're, they make really flashy, big budget, really fun projects, but they're kind of one-offs usually. It's not SaaS friendly. So yeah, our investable story back then probably wasn't investable. And it, it learned a lot. You know, I, I think one of the most shocking experiences of my time in that moment was when an investor looked me in the eye and said, I love you guys. You strike me as a company that's going to sell to Twitch for $50 million. And frankly, I'm not interested in that outcome. And (laughs) my jaw dropped to the floor. (laughs) Was that, I'm not interested because it's not big enough. It's not big enough. Yeah. They, 
if they're going to be a lead investor, they're looking for a billion dollar exit. And so $50 million is not the multiple that they're, they're interested in. Well, you know, I have a lot of respect for 50 million myself. But, <laughs> um, okay, I'm gonna, that's an outcome I'm interested in. That's okay. We take the conversation. <laughs> Jeff, I mean, what's your side of that decision to join Hovercast? Yeah. It, so the other big deciding factor on my part is, so yeah, I was in a very happy place with the foundation. Really exciting seeing that growing. Also then that same week, and then Eli was talking about getting accepted into this accelerator and running down there was basically the same week that my first kid was born. So I was also uh, about to deal with all of that. So I was sort of postponing any real decisions until after that. And so that was my other big excuse for not flying to New York immediately. That process was while I was on that leave, you know, thinking a whole lot about that. I'm not a huge risk taker. And this was, you know, a big, it felt like a big professional risk. I mean, I had complete uh, and utter faith in the idea, in the the sort of idea that this sort of interactivity was going to be really big for video and online audiences and the future of entertainment and connecting people. I had complete faith in Eli. Honestly, one of the biggest deciding factors was was the FOMO of it all. I couldn't shake the fact that it's a good idea it was going to go on and be successful in a really great way. And as much as I loved working at the foundation and with the team there, the even harder thing would be to be there two years later and seeing Eli with Hovercast off and flying. And I really wanted to be a part of that. And I got my BU email address in, uh, you know, March of 2004, which meant I was able to, you know, immediately register for a Facebook account back when it was those eight Boston area schools we're there at BU across the river from Zuckerberg and having a startup was always, always a, a dream of mine, even if I, you know, despite my total risk aversion, it was still a, a real dream of mine. And this is the first startup I've worked at, which has been its own sort of set of challenges, but i am re- always wanted to do it, you know, really own something and really get to control it and, and, and take a stab at something in this tech world. And it felt like the this was our, this was our moment. This was our idea. You know, after, after years of, uh, Eli and I brainstorming over this and thinking up ideas and, and, and batting stuff around, I knew that this one really would have some legs and would be a fun space to explore. How did you guys decide what terms that you have with each other in terms of ownership and, and, uh, role sometimes hard to get right issues? That, that part has been pretty natural i think it's been pretty easy we split everything 50 50 um you know we don't own 50 percent each at this point i think we have 34 percent each or something like that but yeah i mean everything's shared i think we this kind of mutual trust is really important you know i trust that jeff is gonna work hard and i'm gonna do the same so we're a good partnership there i'm trying to think if there's any issue you know, we both, it was not an easy decision for either of us to do this because after not getting investment, we had a pretty rough go in 2019 until we found politics. We did not make much money as a company. And I think we went about seven months not paying ourselves, um, which thankfully is not the case anymore. But uh, yeah, I mean, we're in it together. We split everything evenly. We, we have the same salary. I think it's uh, 
we know and in terms of like delegating idea ideas and what what work is going to happen um we know each other's strengths you know i can't code jeff can code i am the more front-facing i talk to customers a little bit more evangelize the company make the sales decks try and have the big ideas and uh we collaborate really nicely. You know, I think one of the amazing things about working with Jeff is he's a developer who can code and design. You know, this is like a unicorn we're talking to here. And so he's a very creative guy. And, and that's a big asset when it comes to talking about creative ideas. I've just become used to a cadence where I come up with some idea, I pitch it to Jeff, he, he pushes back. And then the next morning it's already built. <laughs> that's what I'm used to. And it's just amazing. Uh, working Honestly, that's, it. that's extremely lucky. Yeah, um, no, I think, you know, it's, and it is, you know, that, that, like I said, we're, we're both really creative, which is the, the similarity part. That's helpful. We're really comfortable. Hopefully I like to think, you know, I, I did push back on all sorts of Eli's ideas just yesterday and, you know, our relationship is strong enough that if I shoot down or I say I don't like something, we can be honest enough about each other with that and not take it personally and know that we're really in it for the the work and that sort of extroversion, introversion piece is also super helpful. My original dream was to have a business card that said Jeff Greco CEO. When the rubber hits the road, that involves talking to a whole lot of strangers all day, every day. And I realized that's not really what I'm in this for. I like building the stuff. I'm not the guy to go out and, and be the social animal so much. And whereas, like, that's Eli's lifeblood, which is so that's a really, really, really lucky compliment in our relationship. And I don't pick that up from you guys in the conversation or, you know, the video that I can see that, that the listener won't be able to. Jeff's on the borderline of introvert, extrovert. I think you're more extroverted than you give yourself credit for. But a lot of us introverts can fake it pretty well in certain circumstances. Yeah. One of the things we definitely struggle with is is um, we're both, I don't know if you're a, a prescribed to the Myers-Briggs, but we're, we're actually both ENFP types, uh, which means we're both very open to all possibilities. And it sort of shows in our company, we have this company that can work with YouTube as a client and E3 and Bernie Sanders all at the same time. And so getting us to decide on one thing is, is uh, usually doesn't work. That's, that's maybe the one fatal flaw of uh, our collaboration is we both are very avoidant of closing off possibilities. So we've built like the most customizable, flexible tool that could exist. So, so tell me about the, the, course of the company you have seven months of being unpaid you at some point you decide to go after the political vertical at some point you raise some money at, at some point i don't know have you hired what has the course been the course was we were going after brands we were doing some interesting things very random type of work jeff was with his political background was kind of like i think this could work for politics we can use our, I should maybe step back and just tell the audience what our tool does really briefly. So Hovercast is an interactive graphics tool set that makes kind of audience powered live streams. So one piece of our tool is like a TV studio, uh, browser based TV studio that can make really cool graphics that look like ESPN or CNN. And those graphics have the added um, component of being able to connect to all sorts of 
different uh, social media platforms or donation forms. So we can connect to the Twitch chat or YouTube chat or ActBlue and integrate that engagement into the stream. Another piece of our tool is kind of a website builder, which works as a virtual events landing page. So those pieces together allows our customers to make really fun, interactive virtual events and live streams. Okay, so our journey uh, was basically, Jeff had a hunch that this would work in politics and the uh, 2020 cycle had just started up. All the candidates were running for president. And so we were trying, I, I was emailing everyone I knew who had any connection to any of these candidates all of them, all of the Democrats. Let me stop you just on that. So that there's a decision there to only do the Democrats. Was that yes. always going to be the case? Have you ever uh, wavered in that? We don't work with We're- Republicans. Um, there was uh, like a libertarian crypto candidate that we had a long conversation about and, and eventually was shot down. But uh, yeah, uh, we work with, with progressive candidates. It felt pretty straightforward. Um, I mean, in, in the politics side, it's easy, frankly. I mean, like, you know, because you've got cleaner lines for the most part. It was pretty pretty easy to make that choice. If it were 15 years ago, who knows? Maybe we would have found more sort of edge cases, but things are so polarized now. We are both really progressive guys with really strongly held core beliefs. So that... Um, that felt, yeah, that felt like a pretty easy choice. When we talk about other outside groups, other nonprofits or industry groups, it does get a little trickier when you're talking about, you know, um, we've turned down so- certain forms of, you know, energy industry groups that don't seem like they're perfectly aligned with handling climate change issues. And even then, some of that's even beyond our, like, science, you know, we have to kind of make choices from a scientific perspective, like, you know, where do we stand on natural gas or something like that, which those those get trickier and require a, a lot of conversations. But, uh, yeah, it was never otherwise it was never, never too tempting to um, to open up to, to the right. So continue with the story, Eli. Sure. So we tried with everyone. We basically threw everything at the wall and saw what stuck. And the first candidate that we got with was Tom Steyer. And that was really helpful because we were broke and he saved our company, essentially. Um, But it was also a cool, it was a cool relationship. Um, We were able to, what was interesting about him was that he didn't want to raise any money. He had all the money. He didn't need to do grassroots donations. So it wasn't a perfect fit for our company because we, you know, we're now really optimized for grassroots donations. But um, one thing we were able to do was help him with kind of Q&As, online kind of forums, you know, moderating chat in ways that allowed him to kind of safely pick the best chat messages. And then he also was interested in um, kind of gamifying signup forms. So we were able to do some meters that connected to how many signups were happening in a live event. Working with Tom helped us land Andrew Yang. And so we got with Andrew Yang in Iowa um, pretty late in the game, but we were with him long enough to prove that we increased his fundraising by a multiple of four times the amount during live events. 
which was really a strong case study. And so I had been talking to the Bernie folks and they were mostly ignoring my emails. But then I was able to say, hey, we just forexed Andrew Yang's live donations. You want to chat? And they were like, yeah, <laughs> let's chat. And uh, we got with Bernie. It's amazing. Our first show with him was in New Hampshire um, for this Strokes concert. And that turned out to be this huge fundraise for them and was a very kind of jubilant, really wild event in New Hampshire. That was, so, if you can recall, he was he was in the lead back then. And we did some... Yeah, that was the night before the primary. And that was really where it all, you know, starting there and then for the next six weeks was really sort of the rocket ride up um, for him and, and his campaign um, in that cycle. And... It was a really eventful uh, six weeks as well, you know, February and March 2020, if we recall. After that first event, they went and started using our sort of overlays. We sort of rebuilt a live.berniesanders.com landing page to be more on brand. That's a big part of what we try to do is make things really on brand for all these clients. You know, we aren't a cookie cutter solution. Like we want things to be customizable and look pretty seamless and white label, um, which is big for a lot of these higher end clients. campaign. So they, yeah. And they had a really brilliant in-house video team that were following uh, him and, and, and his surrogates all over the country broadcasting once, sometimes twice a day live, always with our sort of graphics and our, you know, hooked up to the act blue donations, shouting out donors, um, putting user comments on screen in really fun ways. Like as these folks and surrogates and candidates are going through their stump speeches, you could do a lot with the audience engagement that's coming in. We do a lot of putting audience comments prominently on screen to really shout out people. You show their comment, you show their name. And since we knew with stump speeches, what the cadence of these events would be, you can start banking content that comes in over the course of a broadcast. So if you know you really want to hit uh, your labor points at 43 minutes in, all throughout the broadcast leading up to that, you can be saving these great labor-related comments and then showing them on screen at that time. Ditto any other issue or any other big uh, punch point. But it really creates this great way for a virtual audience to have an entry point and visibility into the the sort of live event that's happening. And so that went on for for February. And then, um, of course, when COVID hits, I feel like we really also helped the campaign pivot really seamlessly into full-on virtual campaigning that first week, uh, Bernie was not doing fundraising, but he was holding a bunch of COVID-focused health uh, and economic-related events, pulling people in virtually, doing sort of fireside chats. We were still able to kind of keep that intimacy with the audience, bringing them in on screen, um, keeping things looking good, and and keeping that line of communication open. I mean, we can't take full credit. Again, there. The in-house video team there was the best in the, was the best in the business. So, um, but I, I'm really proud of the part we played in, in making that transition easier. Did you find your way into other of the Democratic campaigns than the three you've mentioned, the presidential? Those were the three main ones we did. So we started working with a bunch of the state parties. Um, you know, once it was clear that Biden was was the candidate. We worked with the Ohio Dems, the Pennsylvania Dems, the Wisconsin Dems, Florida Dems, 
Minnesota, Pennsylvania. Um, one of the things we really specialized in at that time was kind of this fusion of entertainment meets fundraising. So we did a lot of these kind of uh, reunion shows. We we did, let's see, the Hamilton reunion um, in Florida. So the cast of Hamilton uh, came and and did an awesome fundraiser. We did Super Bad, Happy Days, and all of these are sort of like kind of watch parties mixed with fundraising, mixed with behind the scenes, uh, with this kind of layer of interactive TV style graphics on top. Like one of the things that we really pride ourselves in is, is if you're looking for something that's a little bit more than a conference call, it's more like a TV show, you can come to us and, and we'll really help help you uh, achieve a, a beautiful look, even with kind of remote guests. And there was, there's some cool interactivity we can lend to that too, you know, for some of these sort of typically pretty dry state party conventions that they were putting on. It was able to be a much richer experience for viewers. There were things like trivia games thrown in and really sort of fun over the top donor shout out sessions with the party chair with, you know, name scrolling all over the screen behind him and, and green screen and things like that. And then also on these, some of these more celebrity focused fundraisers, uh, we were able to do things like, you know, set donation goals that we're trying to hit during the stream. And if we hit those goals, then fun things will get unlocked. Like two cast members of Hamilton uh, went off camera and cross-dressed and came back on because we hit $500,000 during the stream and, and stuff like that. I'm not sure if I'm conceptualizing this right, but like recently uh, I was trying to do Netflix party with another couple to watch a, a movie together in COVID times. And there's nothing lamer than that, honestly. There's texting on the right side of the screen and it's, it's kind of a pain to set up. Would that fit as a like overlay to just have a bunch of people watch a film together? We don't really necessarily bring, provide like the video conferencing tools for uh, like that use case in kind of a consumer facing way. Although we do have an integration with Comcast TVs to make their TVs more interactive. You can like vote on polls and use meters on Comcast. So we've kind of dipped our toes in the TV space a little bit. We're definitely sort of on the broadcasting side where it's sort of the one to many still. And that's why live engagements make the most sense and sort of elevating specific members of the audience. So it's not, not as much about private individual groups as it is about sort of the more larger communal crowd play experience. And so there's aspects of that. So yeah, there is a chat room, you know, we're typically pulling these comments from a chat room that's happening on the right hand side of the screen on Twitch or on YouTube or on Facebook. And then we've got a whole back end system where it's moderating that curating that we allow for all sorts of either legal or decision makers to go through and say, okay, yeah, this is a good thing for us to put on screen and highlight. And then we really want to make a show out of highlighting that, elevating really quality content that helps underline the message of what's going on on the video. But sort of proof points that we're, we allow the audience to reflect back to us in terms of, you know, the, the message we're trying to get across, the, the issues we're trying to hit, and letting the, the audience join in and as a chorus and hit those. Did the Biden folks ever... Did you talk to them for the general? How did that go? I was wondering if you brought that up. Yeah, we, we came pretty close to uh, landing that campaign, um, but did not. We ended up doing 
a small thing for them called the Biden Home States Inauguration Event, uh, which was kind of a more Delaware-focused um, event. But yeah, we were in the mix. Ultimately, I think we were too small of a company for them to trust. At the time, we had four employees. <laughs> so um, I, I think they were looking for some someone with a little bit more of a staff than we had. But yeah, we tried and we came very, very close. I think we would have helped too. They might have actually won. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say they... <laughs> uh, the, uh, <laughs> I think the you know we uh, we it was exciting though to get you know involved in the runoff afterwards you know some of these fun celebrity fundraisers we talked about were for for Warnock and Ossoff um, so that was sort of a uh, a nice coda to the the whole 2020 experience for us was to to get a couple more months of of being involved in that and I think that's one of the really big takeaways from that year of virtual campaigning that I think is going to resonate into election cycles to come, even if, you know, knock on wood, we have a post-coronavirus world someday when we aren't all necessarily forced to do it all virtually. There's still really big opportunities, especially for these less national campaigns, to get a more national audience. You know, something like the Georgia Senate or any of these other state Senate campaigns we worked with, um, to really get that audience uh, nationwide, even worldwide, though we're not letting folks overseas donate, get those eyeballs, get people involved that you weren't going to get with a traditional in-person event if you were just happened to be holding it at Atlanta or something like that. Not only can you get more of an audience, but you can also get more of a show together. You had really motivated Hollywood types, celebrities. You're not going to get it, the whole cast of Elf to fly out uh, to, to Georgia to do a reunion for for. Warnock and, and Ossoff, but you can get them to zoom in uh, for an evening and wind up really, again, capturing a much broader audience than just an in-person event could have achieved. How small is too small of a campaign to consider you? Right now, we've been talking about sort of mostly the very high-end, uh, most visible campaigns in the country. What about the lower end? I think we're definitely optimized for big events and grassroots fundraising. Although I would say no, no one is too small to work with us. We have worked with some campaigns that don't have the infrastructure that Bernie Sanders does. You know, like we worked with Jackie Fielder in San Francisco, for example, and, um, and Nitya Raman in Los Angeles. Nithya Raman, exactly. Make their campaign, make their video. Everyone needs better looking video. That's a baseline. You know, one of our value props is, will increase your production value. And I don't think there's any client who wants to do a live stream that doesn't need better production value. So that's one piece of it. Uh, the audience engagement, you know, definitely our tool works best if you have an audience. It's uh, really helpful to have. It's more about whether they can bring a real audience to it. We've done some really smallish events um, and made their guests feel so special by being on the broadcast. I, you know, something that comes to mind is is uh, Emerge. We do these events with Emerge, and um, they have a pretty small audience. You know, we're talking in like the the single digit thousands of viewers, and um, they're they have such an engaged audience. And just seeing some of the positive comments being displayed on screen or some of the really insightful questions that they ask being asked to a guest. Um, that really is 
awesome. You know, it, it does a lot for for that community. They feel closer together. One of the big things our our company is about is, is building community in a live event and and making it feel like you're actually a part of the show when you're watching it. You're helping build the show and guide the decisions. You're not being just talked at the whole time. You're part of it. And I think we can do that for a small show as well as a big one. There've been for a long time, a variety of tools that politicians use for like virtual town halls or related things. I interviewed Dan Kirshner from Greenfly, which the Biden campaign did use, which is also kind of a video and campaign tool that's in a little bit of a different area. But like, how do you see your competition? What are the other tech options that you would come up against that someone might go with instead of you? And how do you distinguish yourself? Sure. So, you know, one of the main competitors is just Zoom itself. If a campaign is cool with just doing something on Zoom, then uh, that sometimes works for them. Uh, One of our, you know, the company we competed against for the Biden campaign and lost to is called Brand Live. They've got a tool set for this type of thing. Um, There's other, you know, ActBlue has a simple landing page site. Definitely, like, folks can just stream on Twitch. Sometimes they don't want their graphics to be interactive or exciting. So we have so many competitors in different spaces. There's graphic studios. There are platforms themselves. There's more specific production companies that that handle the graphics themselves. I think where our sweet spot is, is the interactivity and the integrations. We really can connect you to your goal as a campaign. You know, like we love to reverse engineer this and say, what are you hoping to get out of this other than it just being fun? And if the answer is we want to increase donations or we want a really engaged chat, we want, we want a lot of people to share this, we want signups, we can kind of gamify and, and really make those actions fun in a live experience in a way that's authentic and not just kind of like cheap. We pride ourselves on like meaningful interaction. And so, yeah, there's a billion competitors to us, but we're unique. We're creative. We're not cookie cutter too. Um, Some of the other options um, are really, they look the way they do. Like one example, a huge virtual events company is called Hopin and they've exploded. They're now a $2 billion company or more. They exploded in the pandemic. And I think, you know, people use them because their events, they look, it looks like a Facebook page, basically. And um, they make it pretty easy to network while at a virtual event. Um, So folks go to them for something that someone without broadcast experience can just use. For us, it's more about like, we make your site look like your brand. And we work with you really closely to make your graphics deliver the type of result that you'd want and look the way you want. So we we pride ourselves on kind of that custom, uh, beautiful, interesting, interactive experience. Does that produce a difficulty in scaling? I mean, a lot of times when you have that kind of customizability, you're ending up doing a lot of services work, which takes time from your staff and um, yep. Absolutely. Yeah, and it does. <laughs> uh, and that's why, you know, we're, 
our our work is not just in politics um and we have aspirations to you know our whole company is about kind of empowering audiences to interact with streams and so uh we're working on some stuff this year that that's more kind of streamer focused off the shelf tools that are kind of gamified or really like fun interactive more automated experiences but um for the political folks we we do have kind of essentially our own little studio set up and we've expanded our staff considerably since uh we had four members and so we we are able to um provide some of those high touch services and we're not shy about it because i think you know what we've learned is that if you're going to put on a TV quality event, you really need pros doing it. And so we work with a lot of production partners to help this. Um, and we also have our own staff who can do it. And we always love with working with a campaign who has their own video staff. Um, you know, we just worked with Crooked Media and they have an incredible video staff and they were able to get trained to use our tool. And they ran a show without us doing anything that does scale. But, um, for folks without a video team, we can still work with you. Uh, it just either we'll find you a production partner or we'll produce it ourselves. So to continue with the course of the company, how have you done on raising money, on hiring staff? How big are you now? You came to my attention, I think, because of involvement with Higher Ground Labs. How did that fit in? Yeah. So after our Hamilton event for the Georgia Dems, which was a really awesome fundraiser, pretty entertaining. Um, an investor named Shanna Fisher reached out. She has a firm called Third Kind Venture Partners, Venture Capital. And yeah, she just said, I, I want to invest. And uh, we didn't run a process. We didn't go out to 40 investors. We really hit it off with her. And we raised 1.1. So we're calling it a pre-seed. I think like you know, it, back in the day, that would be considered a seed round, but it's sort of like either a large pre-seed or a small seed round, depending on how you want to look at it. I don't think the terminology really matters, but we raised with them and Higher Ground Labs came in and that company Tool of North America that I mentioned, which is like a, a Los Angeles production company. And we had we had personal relationships with each of those and wanted, were really interested in them as sort of strategic uh, investors. So I, I had worked... Um, with Betsy Hoover and 270 Strategies here in Chicago a bit um, before I, I joined the foundation. Um, I had been tracking uh, what they'd been up to uh, ever since they started Higher Ground and, and um, knew that that was uh, really, I mean, if we had been more politics focused initially, I think that would have been a really great place for us to start. I think they're doing really awesome stuff over there. And so they're a great partner as we, you know, try to stay hooked into the progressive tech sphere. And then, yeah, similarly, Tool in North America uh, for, you know, they're, they've helped keep us grounded with brands and, and, and in L.A. a little bit and handle that side of things. And like Eli said, you know, earlier on, you know, more is more for us. You know, we like exploring in all these different directions and all these different industries because we think there's a lot of value in these different contexts, but we're focused on um, politics as one of the primary uh, markets and, and, and niches that um, we want to keep focusing on. You know, I think one of the other things we're working on is, you know, making the tool more turnkey, really doing more with these landing pages, event pages, doing private ticketed events, 
things like that. We did some interesting stuff with how can we make more interesting experiences for higher dollar donors? You know, what's a VIP experience before a show look like? Um, how can you bend a candidate's ear uh, before the show and provide that that, that sort of uh, higher dollar experience? So these are all areas that we're exploring, building out new tools, more integrations, uh, either with text banking or with with other CRMs is, is another big area where, you know, how can we feed in more sort of real time achievements and what else can we fill thermometers with on screen? There's a big transition, I think, with a company that had been depending on its own revenue to having raised money. And how do you think about how many people do you bring on and how do you spend what seems a little bit like free money, but isn't, which can get squandered uh, often is, how, how do you think about like using those funds wisely and keeping the company on a path to self-sufficiency? We're at 10 employees now. So we have uh, staffed up a little bit. Jeff is not doing everything by himself anymore. We have an awesome staff of 10 and, and a lot more contractors We've done this really big project with Expo 2020 in Dubai. It's the World's Fair that's happening, um, still happening right now. We've created this big interactive 100 live stream series with them that has all this cool kind of gamification technology with leaderboards and uh, all sorts of new, new stuff for us, badges. Because of that contract and the fundraising, we're a profitable company, which is a little rare for a tech company. We actually make money. Um, it is interesting to think about how much to staff up because we're at the same time that we're profitable. We don't have a billion clients like Hopin with like this repeatable SaaS model totally solidified. We have this tool called Hovercast Pro, which is what we've been talking about, which is like a professional live stream studio. It really does need to be run by some professional, either us or on the client side. And while we're trying to make it more turnkey, it, there will always be a little bit of a barrier for entry uh, on that one. And at the same time, we're working on more kind of off-the-shelf products that can be much more scalable. And Have you looked at agency partners that would want to just do this kind of thing and use your tool? Like you, you in some ways, sounds like most of the time you are your own agency. But if if there's a lot of demand and you could have someone else selling this and sort of just, you know, acting as the sales person for a lot of clients in their niche, it seems like a possibility. Yeah, exactly. And we, we have some really cool partners. Um, we, we have a partner program. We love production companies and agencies. For companies like that, the tool is not hard to learn. And with a, one or two sessions, uh, they're able to use it themselves. And so, um, yeah, we have some partners. We're looking for more if you're out there listening and you're an agency or production company. Uh, we'd we'll, we'll love to work with you. I assume that works in the in the political space too. That there are all these digital firms. Why shouldn't they add that to their arsenal? It's true. Yeah, like for example, Act TV is a really good um, partner of ours. Who they use our tool on a lot of their shows. We made this tool not not for something that just the two of us can use. That's why we created a company. If we wanted just to be directors who had technology, we would have kept it to ourselves. But this tool is for other people to use. And we think interactivity is here to stay. 
It makes shows more fun and engaging for the audience. It leads to better outcomes with fundraising and other goals. Virtual events and hybrid events will be a huge aspect of the future. And politics is always a little bit slower than kind of the rest of the tech industry to adopt uh, technology. I'm not sure if that's entirely true. Like it's maybe to adopt it widely, but sometimes it's the first to popularize something like it can it can be a kind of a mixed bag. I'm curious if you guys have any sort of sort of larger thoughts about how what you're doing in in sort of more broad terms, what it implies for the future of politics. Do you think that this is part of some fundamental change in the way that campaigns can interact with people? Is this basically kind of in line with what's inevitably already happening? How do you see where you fit in? It really does make campaigns more accessible in a big way and also opens up a lot of avenues for listening and feedback, um, communication between supporters and campaigns. Now, you know, to what end campaigns are willing to listen is a really good question. And, you know, to what extent are campaigns just trying to leverage supporters rather than, you know, handing over control is is a really good question. I mean, that's something that we have has been a fundamental question with a lot of the interactivity we support, even with brands to begin with is, you know, we've wanted to project the idea of handing over total control to the audience while still giving guardrails for the creators. You don't want to pr- provide a forum for trolling. Exactly. So it's it's all about really how can you give as much control as possible or make it look like you're giving as much control as possible while still keeping a pretty steady hand at the till behind the scenes. And I think that that does translate to a certain extent where ultimately the the campaign, the broadcaster, whomever is is the one who's in charge of what's going on screen with our tool. But which they would like. I mean, I mean no, it's, a, it's a necessity. It's, and it's, we have you know, an extremely robust moderation tool uh, when it comes to trolling. It's why AOC likes working with us. You know, like when it comes to trolling, we have a really great tool for allowing our clients to really pick what makes it its way onto the screen and what does not. If you're looking at a thousand comments, if you're if you're doing the Democratic debate or something and the the feedback is in the millions. I mean, you're just inevitably picking a tiny sample of things, well, right? It's, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's one thing we do extremely well. We've worked on some huge events. For example, last year's E3 video game conference, which was on Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook all at the same time. So we were processing, I don't know, it was something like 100 chats per second. And what's cool about our system is without getting too technical, if you have a moderation team, we can split up the workload between the group. And for a big show like that, if seeing every chat is important to you, we could have, we've had shows with five moderators and they're seeing every fifth comment and we have ways of slowing down the chat for the moderators to sort things. We have search terms. Uh, It's something we handle actually really well. I mean, there's also sort of, aggregate views of data like that? Lots of data viz ideas. Do you do any of that sort of stuff? We're actively developing more of a sort of analytics piece that will provide some more uh, insight into that. Another big interaction we do a lot of is polling. 
so that's that's a little more structured than necessarily what you were what you were getting at. But that is how we handle these sort of larger audience type interactions. You're 100 percent right that you know you're not going to be you know showing every single comment on screen, but we definitely help you find the best ones to be reflecting back. But then stuff like polling works much better at scale, as well as some of the gamification tools we've been putting out provide more of an opportunity for individuals in a really large group to sort of have their voices be heard. It is a really good challenge to be focusing on. And we're we're, we're thinking a lot about what, what the rewards can be for participants. Like that's a really fundamental piece of what we're trying to do is reward the participant for being a part of this interactivity. Eli's really deep into the, the the crypto scene. I'm a little little more skeptical, but there's definitely a lot there in terms of how are you receiving some sort of recognition? What can you receive? What token can you receive in return for for participating or uh, buying something or showing up to something? And I've I've heard of a number of other people in the political space working on that problem, and I'm I'm curious to see how that develops. We think that like the the involvement that the audience does should be recognized and it is labor of some kind, you know, and we like to treat our audiences with kind of dignity and by showing the best comments, by featuring their names on screen in fun ways. And then, you know, what Jeff was alluding to, there's a lot of interesting things in the future about kind of proof of participation, badges, other kind of digital asset, hats, giveaways. Um, yeah, and going back to your other question, I think it is a part of the future of politics is kind of hybrid events. There's just so many benefits that have been realized over this pandemic of having the national audience, being able to do it cheaper, uh, and just really like having your own stage and having control of your own message. I think that's something that Bernie was so savvy about. He didn't love the press that he was getting, so he created his own TV network. And it was on YouTube and Twitch and Facebook all at the same time. What we do is we allow candidates to reach their audiences where the audiences hang out. You know, they, People are on Twitch and they're on Facebook. And uh, we really allow the candidates to tap into that and make those experiences kind of more interactive than they would be in a normal way. So I think that... That's really here to stay. And we're so excited about kind of like other forms of audience interaction that influence a live event. What does the future of hybrid events look like where you do have an in-person audience and you have a live audience on online and, and they both play different parts in that show and can influence the show in different ways. Uh, we think that the audience is like an asset to, you know, both honor, but also use leverage for creative executions and Q&A is a really basic example but we we think that we do it better than it exists right now like the way that Q&As typically work at an in-person town hall is you wait for someone to raise their hand and you have no idea what they're going to say it could be a conspiracy theory it could be anything anything but with our system we take in all the chats we have a moderator sort through them, pick the best ones, and then we ask them on screen, and then we display the name of the user who, who asked it. They get the validation of seeing their chat on screen, and the show gets better because the content is, is handpicked. 
I mean, it's funny. It makes me even think of like, uh, you know, you think of sort of the old trope of a candidate doing their stump speech and saying, you know, I met a, I met a woman the other day. I met a nurse in this diner and she told me X, Y, and Z. But we almost take out the middleman and even make it more authentic because we can show the comment from that nurse who's saying, you know, I'm so overwhelmed by what's happening at this hospital right now. We need more help. She said that in the YouTube chat. We're putting that on screen as part of this broadcast to underline the point. You could all, but the campaign could plant that person. I mean, you know, it could. Yeah, it certainly could. But you know, there's there's tape to back it up. We've got a name or username associated with it. Even if we're not also getting to every single person in a huge crowd, not showing every single person's comment on screen, the fact that individuals are still getting acknowledged still brings some of those warm fuzzies and still gives you a, a much more sort of communicative listening stance. And I'll say, you know, honestly, what we found is we've got ways to rig things and plant things like if you need to, like you can type whatever you want into our comment box, you know, that could be a staffer. I've been genuinely surprised that that generally doesn't come up. Like the the audiences that you get, you have supporters out there who are really, really on your side for these campaigns and it gives them a great avenue to participate and they will help you out. People will be chatting your, uh, your, your, your slogan and your catchphrase and they'll be trying to get on screen. So, you know, honestly, there's, there's a real feedback loop there of, of people trying to get, you know, give you what you want to show. Two of the candidates that we have going in 2022 that are really strong are the governor's races in Georgia and Texas. Have, have you guys hooked up with either of them? Have you tried to? We did some work with uh, Texas last cycle. Um, so Beto's we, running this time. Yeah. So we are, we aren't, we're not working directly with them yet. Yeah. Because that seems like the kind of campaign with a kind of candidate that would attract you know, that. I think it's, you know, it's there definitely is a sweet spot of like the ideal campaign is a charismatic. Yeah. And if they're listening, we'd love to <laughs> connect. <laughs> um. Beto is almost too competent in some ways. It's sort of like the Beto and AOCs who just hop on Instagram live at the, you know, in the dentist or whatever. They are so good at going so direct that they're able to do that in a really casual way. But that's not that's, you know, what we found is most candidates and even and even those candidates in some situations still need a little more structure, still need, you know, their scheduled events still need. So should we have done this podcast interview live through your thing? Would that have been possible? You know, with my giant live audience? Yeah. Yeah, we could have. And we could have taken questions and curated them and had a really cool Q&A with some polls and the polls could have said, what hat should Jeff wear? And uh, the audience could decide. And Next time you get a big draw, uh, yes, you know, bigger, bigger than us for sure. I think, you know, uh, to Eli's point about you need at least a little bit of an audience showing up for the... No, I'd have to... Uh, the, can we computer generate an audience? You know, just have um, <laughs> AI audience? Jeff, that can you work helpful. on that tonight? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll get it to you by tomorrow. Okay. I like that. I mean, I'll take credit for that idea if you, if you generate your <laughs> AI audience. Hey, guys, it's been really cool talking to you. Is there a question I didn't ask that I should have? How can you reach us? <laughs> how, oh, I, I intend to give your website, but how can they reach you? You want to give your personal email out, your phone Hovercast. number? Hovercast.com. Uh, yeah, you can hit me up at Eli at Hovercast.com if you'd like. Um, and our website is there. Social media handle is 
Hubbercast Live. Um, yeah, just happy to chat with anyone who wants to make a great looking show that incorporates the audience and helps raise money or helps achieve some other goal. And um, one thing we're really excited about moving forward is, is kind of like empowering campaigns and organizations to set up their own little sort of TV studio in a way. We envision a future where the world moves so fast. And so we envision our technology having a way of just kind of, you know, you want to go live at any moment's notice because something big just happened. Power up Hovercast and reach your audience on any platform that you want uh, in, a, in a moment's notice. And and that requires kind of working with us and um, getting to, to know the tool and getting your event page set up. But uh, we've done that with the Bernie team and works really well. And uh, we'd love to do it with other, other folks. Yeah, a lot of sort of young young folks getting involved in, in politics and campaigns early on have been really excited and, and, and energized about picking up those basic foundational video production streaming skills that go into this. And I think that's just, you know, going to be such a, a great part of the toolkit to have for years to come in these contexts. So it's been great working with, you know, getting people off and running. We've already seen, you know, starting to see the dividends of the folks that we work with, you know, on, on one campaign, getting back in touch with them on the next one, of course, and uh, really excited about continuing to generally grow that competency on the progressive side. Like we want to maintain that edge with video, with interactivity, with participation and do whatever we can to keep that technological edge uh, firmly in our camp. Well, it, it strikes me as the kind of thing, the more variations you have on it, the better, because it's, you know, can be hot for one candidate and well-known and then no one wants to do exactly the same thing. But um, very good conversation, I thought. Uh, learn a lot about what, what you're doing, which means other people will too. Anything else you want to say? Thank you so much uh, for the time. It's, it's been great chatting with you. And it's fun to reflect on how quickly this this ecosystem does change. And the, the idea that, you know, I remember being younger and having no idea, like, how does anyone have a career in this, in this industry? What's it? I can't imagine what it's going to look like when I'm this much older. And uh, I was right. I couldn't have imagined what it was going to look like, but it is going to be something and it's going to be there and it's excited to still be a part of it. Well, when I started, there were, you could count the number of people in politics and technology in the country. And now you can't. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's cool. And I think what what's helpful for us is we're not just a political tech company. We have other interests and that allows us to last longer than one election cycle. And, uh, continue to grow and build our technology. And we're really looking for people who want to push the envelope. You know, if you have some integration that you want to add to your live stream that hasn't been done before, we'd love to take those calls and really kind of invent the future of this interactive live streaming world. Thank you so much for having us on. That was Jeff and Eli. They're at Hovercast.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.